Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a comedian whose wife calls him the long shot kid. He spent 2019 in some of the most unusual places, and the documentary of that tour has been turned into Chris Gethard, Half My Life. We welcome comedian Chris Gethard. Hi. Most people don't bring up the long shot kid. Well done. Well done. Chris, let's go beyond the mic. In 2019, we were all innocent. Nobody had even heard of COVID-19, and you were on the road taping Half My Life. Indeed. I uh, I hope that when people watch this special, obviously I didn't know this was going to happen, but I hope people watch it and go, oh, right, we used to go out, we used to do things. That's what live shows looked like. And it was right before, it was a few months before the pandemic hit that we stopped filming. So hope it gets people amped up to go, oh, right. We used to go to small rooms with low ceilings and experience things. And drink those overpriced, watered-down drinks. Where are some of the weird places you went on this tour? I saw a portion where you were doing a set in front of alligators, or were they crocodiles? Alligators, yeah. Yeah, uh, that show is taped at a place called Gatorland. I have a joke about Gatorland that I've been working on for seven or eight years, and it's kind of just grown and grown, and they found out about it, and that got incorporated into the joke, and then they eventually let me come to their facility in Orlando and uh, perform a set for about 30 full grown alligators and no humans. That was wild. Uh, The show also captures a a 9am pancake show. There's, there's a bunch of chaotic things in there. As you put together this tour, what was going through your mind? Did you think that you were going to do weird stuff or was it one thing led to up to another? The alligator show was clearly like a very, thought up idea. The rest of it is just kind of how I roll. I like spaces that are non-traditional. I like spaces that maybe have their roots in the music scene as much as the comedy scene. Um, I like places that allow experimentation to happen. And with my background, you know, my TV show, if anybody knows it, it was nuts. It was nuts and it was largely improvised. And I just kind of like rolling with the punches and seeing what happens and letting the audience affect things. So I'm not sitting here trying to engineer uh, weird moments, but if somebody wants to get on stage in Baltimore and wrestle me, I'm I'm happy to let it happen and see how it goes. Uh, I don't sit there and try to make that happen, but I don't try to stop it either. Why is improvisational comedy so much deeper than what a traditional comedian performs? I mean, traditional comedian has joke, joke, joke. When you've got an improvisational comedian, it's pretty much opening it up to whatever the audience will give them. Well, you know, it's a great question. It's it's something that actually bums me out because I came up at UCB. I started there 21 years ago. And I think for a long time, that place was just, people were raising the bar for each other. Experimentation was key. Was key. And at a certain point, it got very codified. I think improv has become a bit of a joke. Um, it's a bummer. I see why it happened. But for me... The thing I always loved about it back in that golden age was that anything really could happen. And I I learned pretty quickly that of all my peers, I'm never going to be the funniest one, but I'm pretty willing to just go where things are heading and not regulate them, not stop them. That's, That's a pretty important tenet of improvisation. And maybe some of that is coming from a background of, you know, growing up, going to, you know, punk shows and and shows where the audience was always involved musically where that just felt natural to me what makes music and comedy so similar there is a degree of entertainment but the fans want to hear the hits the old favorites 
Well, the artists want to play the new stuff, want to promote the new stuff. How do you reconcile the needs of the fan who want to hear those old favorite jokes with your own needs? I, I really prescribe to the idea that once something goes out on an album or a special, that it's dead and buried and it's time to rewrite the act. So I don't do the hits. And I, I've actually, there's some comedians I really love who do. And I find it amazing because once I stop doing a bit, it leaves my brain. I, I don't have room for it forever. So there are comedians who are big enough that the crowd really like asks them to do it. And I'm jealous of it. And the musicians, I've told my musician friends, I am very envious of them because they get to put out an album and then actually play those songs. Whereas me, the second somebody likes something I do and hears about it, now I got to write something else and hope they like it as much. It's, it's pressure. We're talking with Chris Cathard beyond the mic. You've been successful with your planet scum site. How did that come together and how hard is it for a comedian, especially with the last year of zoom shows, drive-in shows, just trying to get content out to people. It's been really difficult. Um, Nobody knew how it was going to go. I think a lot of it has been very awkward. Planet Scum, I feel very lucky. I, I just have always been a very community-driven person. And when I see other people who are maybe outliers who like to do things in non-traditional ways, I, I really feel compelled to help them if I'm in a position to do so. And Planet Scum, we run shows multiple nights a week, and it's just a bunch of comedians who are a little outside the norm. And I think we realized that one of the things we could do to maybe overcome some of the awkwardness of pandemic comedy was team up, make it a little bit of an umbrella that we all exist under, take the pressure off ourselves and try to just let everybody know if you see the planet scum label on something, it's going to have a certain vibe. That vibe's going to be a little underground, a little loose. Um, and we all can kind of try to help each other. You know, the shows that catch buzz help the other ships rise. Now, people are starving for entertainment. How hard was it to entertain your son, Caleb, during the quarantine? I mean, it's, that is, uh, <laughs> he, he is, uh, I love that twist on that question. You took me by surprise. I mean, he's a baby. He's two now. So his whole life has been, he just needs constant attention. He needs constant, uh, constant entertainment. But luckily his standards are pretty low. You know, he really... His favorite jokes are me pretending I'm mad at him when he knows I'm not. And then he also really loves telling me things that aren't true. The best example being he has a Yoda doll and he finds it very funny to tell me that Yoda has no feet. And then I act like I'm very upset at that. And I say, Yoda does have feet. I can see them. And then he says it louder. Yoda has no feet. So his standards for bits. I mean, to be fair, he commits hard enough that I do laugh, but it's not like he's demanding uh, sophistication over here. You've lived in New Jersey, but have a thing for New York. No, I won't give you shit about being a New York Knicks fan. <laughs> Thank you. You've written a book about the weird stuff from the island to the upstate New York. Why was this so interesting to you? It actually started for me um, back in New Jersey when I was in high school. Uh, that whole company, I, I wrote the book Weird New York, but a lot of people have probably seen these books, Weird U.S., Weird Ohio, et cetera, all over, Weird Virginia, a, a bunch of them. I'm not going to name all 50 states, but Weird New Jersey started as a fanzine, just kind of an underground magazine you'd see in comic book stores and places like that. And just chronicled a lot of haunted places and abandoned places. And 
uh, really spoke to me. It's a big cultural thing in Jersey. You know, oh, Saturday night, we don't have anything to do. Let's go break into the abandoned mental hospital and see what happens. I think Jersey people have a screw loose and that's just a fact. And I love it. And when I moved to New York, New Jersey asked me if I wanted to kind of spearhead spreading their their vibe out that way. And I think it, almost in the same way we were talking before about how I like onstage chaos, I think I've really always loved that idea of like, you know, in Jersey, like there's the devil's tree where you go, you touch it, and then they say, if you touch it, you'll die before you make it home. Like, that's fun to me. That's fun where we grew up. Let's go attempt death. So it's kind of just part of my personality that shows up on stage and, and in some of my interests outside of comedy. Now, Lose Well is another book of yours, Chris, where you encourage people to fail, then live a life without regret. In radio, there isn't an instant reaction for me. For comedians, people either laugh or they don't. Why was writing Lose Well important for you? Well, a lot of that mentality started with my old public access TV show, which was born of me having a major strikeout. I was on a, a sitcom on Comedy Central that that bombed and it got really bad reviews and it had been my first actual big opportunity. It was supposed to be this big coming out party. There was a New York Times profile. Here's this underground New York. If you know, like New York comedy, you know this guy's finally getting his shot. It's long overdue. And then it bombed. You can imagine that was tough. And then I took the side of myself that's always loved strange comedy, challenging comedy, stuff that is almost indigestible to the mainstream. I said, let me just do it. I want that. If I'm going to get yelled at or slammed, let it be for something I actually care about. And I wound up on public access TV and just kind of the ultimate example in my life of I struck out. It was embarrassing well, what that's going to do is make me reevaluate what do I really want? I can't sit around and be too sad about a sitcom not working when I don't watch sitcoms and I find them quite boring. So what? it's just ego to want that job to survive. And I spent four years on public access and a lot of the people who found that show, I think felt like they were maybe outsiders or told to, you know, you know, we don't want to hear what you have to say. I think it attracted a lot of people like that. And I, I really have spent a lot of my career realizing a big public embarrassing loss set off everything positive in my career that came afterwards. And the only way that happened was because of a mentality that that is the chance for growth. It's a chance for reevaluation. It's a chance to examine who you are, what you want to be, what your ethics are, what you want to say. So I, I really firmly believe in it because I've lived that life experience. And it's something that I think the types of people who like my work really identify with. Chris Gethard with his latest documentary, Chris Gethard, Half My Life, joins us beyond the mic. It's time for the Rocky Nate, Chris. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Favorite place to normally do a comedy show? There's a venue in Baltimore called the Auto Bar. Uh, in the special, it's actually the place where the young woman got on stage and wrestled me. And uh, that is personally my favorite venue to play. There's something about the vibe of that place and the way I think and the types of people it attracts that just mix together perfectly. What's one thing that you do that drives your wife, Hallie, crazy? 
oh, my complete inability to see things like dirt and mold. Um, like she'll be like, Hey, can you clean the toilet? And I'll be like, why it's fine. And then she'll be like, look at this. And I'll go, Oh, right. Oh, you mean clean up the way that it's disgusting? My bad. I didn't, I didn't know that it's very childish and rightfully makes her angry. Now, if someone would hand you $100 million, but you could never listen to the Smiths ever again, would you take their money? Yeah, that's fine. For a hundred million dollars, sure. I don't ever have to hear my favorite band again. Are you kidding? It would set up generations of my family. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I'll, you can erase it all from my hard drive yourself. What about a million? Uh, at this point, Morrissey has said so much outlandish and offensive stuff that I could probably do it for a mil. How about a hundred thousand? Yeah, at that point, I want my songs. If you could do a set with three other comedians, but they all had to be dead, who would be on that stage? With you that one weird night. Wow, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, in the spirit of saying over and over again in this interview that I really appreciate on stage chaos, let's go Andy Kaufman, who's the master of that. Um, Robin Williams. Another master of chaos. You, you know, starting a special by climbing off the balcony and through the crowd. And then who else? Um, I'm loath to say a bunch of white dudes, but I feel like on that bill, if we're going for chaos, you could have a different type of chaos if you threw Don Rickles in there. And that's less feeling out of control. That's more the audience feeling taken aback and totally unsure of if it's going to be targeted at them. Have you ever bought an airplane ticket for a dog? I have not. What's the one food you hated as a kid but love as an adult? Mayonnaise. If you could have chosen another profession, what would you have been? I mean, I think about it all the time because I think about quitting almost every day. Um, historically, I'd love to be a, a tugboat captain. I'd love to work in a comic book store. I recently um, pondered if I should find a job on a farm, and then I, I was told that's actually a very common midlife crisis thought. Maybe I should go be a farmer, so... Those are some that come to mind. What's your best moment as a dad? Oh, there's, there's been so many. Um, one thing that I will never, ever forget is when my son was a few months old, I had him uh, laying on my lap facing me and he was holding my hands and he pulled himself up, like used my fingers to pull himself up to sitting for the first time. And he had this look on his face where he was just going, like you could see him going, dad, I just, I, can you believe what I just, can you believe it? Can you believe it? And it, it was, uh, it was this moment when I realized, oh, there's aspects to this parenting thing that you can't really explain verbally. Like that hit me in a way that I cannot explain to people who haven't seen it, but seeing him that excited and proud about something so small it, 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 i'll never forget it time for one big question with chris gethard beyond the mic chris what is going right with the world right now and what scares you wow that is a big question sadly it's so much easier to see the scarier stuff right um so much scares me the level of division the lack of discourse um the amount to which so many people I see have their minds made up before they ever enter a conversation that 
should theoretically involve debate. I'm a very, I'm no saint. I have my own opinions. I have my own knee-jerk reactions, but I am proud that I, my mentality generally is, if I enter a conversation, look for a chance to learn something. Even from somebody who is saying stuff that I think is off base, look for a chance to grow, look for a chance to learn, you know, shut up and listen as much as you talk. And I think that, I think a lot of our politicians could use that. And obviously the scary thing is how much people are making money off of causing that. I think Mark Zuckerberg and some of his compatriots in particular, they make a lot of money the angrier we get. The more we click on rage-based stuff, people are making money off of making us angry. It's, it's sad and concerning. As far as what's going right, so little, sadly, so little. Um, I say my perspective as a, as, a, as a still young father, one thing I will say is that I've been pleasantly surprised as a parent to realize that a lot of things that scared me or made me walk around with my guard up as a kid are not the parenting style now. I don't think there's a priority on kids having to be tough, like was asked of us in the 80s and early 90s. This idea of you're, you have to go out and handle your stuff. I don't think there's as much of a priority in trying to scare our kids. Like, I don't think I'll ever be telling my kid, you know, anyone in a van is going to kidnap you. I don't think my kid's ever going to have to start his day eating cereal, looking at a milk carton with a kidnapped child's face on it, this constant fear mongering and satanic panic. That stuff's all gone, let alone, you know, if my son is gay, I don't get the sense that he will have to hide that forever, um, both in school and at home. I think that that's a safer conversation to have. Um, I think things like, you know, one of my greatest fears heading into parenthood I had a very, very tense conversation with my wife during a birthing class. They said, let's tell your partner your greatest fear about being a parent. And right away I said, what if my son suffers the same type of depression I have? Like I can't, it short circuits my brain to think about him feeling as lonely as I have at times in life, as, as scared and sad as I have in life. And in that conversation was very intense, but I remember expressing it to a friend who said, your son's going to know he can talk to you. And I think that that is something that's true, not just for me and my son, but a lot of parents is I think the, the generation that raised me coming off of the, you know, fifties, like that white picket fence mentality right into Reaganism and trying to like hang on to this idea of this American ideal of like the tough, the tough uh, go-getter. will survive. Yeah. I think what we're leaving that behind slowly, but surely and, I think that's really good. And then I also feel like one of the things about the pandemic that has me a little bit excited is a lot of us, myself included, I think have started to realize that maybe we allow finances to be too much of a determinant of our self-worth. Like we equate monetary worth with self-worth. And I think a lot of people are going, I just worked from home for a year and I made a lot less money, but I also got to have dinner with my family every night or I didn't come home all pissed off because I didn't commute 90 minutes. And I think a lot of people are maybe taking stock of 
what are the real priorities now? And can I scale down my life, make it a little bit smaller, a little bit, um, a little bit less driven by external pressures. So I have hopes that maybe that will rub off on people long-term as well. It's time for the back half with Chris Gethard beyond the mic. Chris, you've hosted the critically acclaimed podcast, beautiful stories from anonymous people. Where did that concept come from and why does it work in your mind? Well, the concept came because when my public access show got picked up to cable, I knew that there were going to be mandates regarding commercial breaks, pacing. Whereas on the public access show, if we got a good phone call that was better than the idea we came up with, we could just jettison it. And the show was an hour long with no breaks. Go, if I want to spend 15 minutes on the phone, I can. Who cares? We're doing this insane thing. Let's just not do that. Um, so I knew I was going to miss the phone calls. I'd gotten good at it. It's a skill that's rare these days. I think like skillfully talk to someone on the phone. So I thought it was going to be that. I thought it was going to be an extension of the public access show. Instead, it transformed very quickly into a totally different audience and something that's very, you know, I'm not going to claim it's comedy. Um, it's just these very empathetic conversations. And I think why it works is rooted in two things is, is one it does have empathy at its core. I think people know that I'm not going to judge them. I also think people have heard me be open about my problems and issues and lack of confidence and anxiety about life. So they, they feel like they're, you know, this, this is not someone who's ever going to look down at them judgment wise. And then I think just on a basic level, thinking more strategically, it's like there's, so many podcasts over the years that are celebrities interviewing other celebrities. And I think a lot of people sit around and go, what would I say if I was asked to be on that show? And my show just sort of is that you can call in and then you're the interview subject completely randomly out of the blue. So it allows you to, you know, live that fantasy. Same thing when you're a kid and you're seeing concerts and you go, I know every word to this song. What if the lead singer sees me singing along, brings me up and hands me the mic. Like it's kind of that but a podcast. That's why Beyond the Mic was started. Instead of forcing the same three questions that everyone asks you on no matter what media tour you are, I'm going to give you a question that's going to ask you to go deeper with people. It's not here. Thanks for showing up. Here's your gift bag. I'm with you. I think that is so often true. It's nice to hear celebrities be humans. Podcasting has afforded us that at times. It's just like letting humans be humans, I guess. How has your family and friends helped you with your own mental health? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. How easy or hard is it for a person to feel or get lost? Um, I mean, the dog-eat-dog -dog world of, of comedy as well, right? You always want to be better than the person on stage. You're very, very ego-driven. Um, one of my greatest regrets, probably probably my greatest regret in life was how long I spent hiding my problems from my family. Uh, also my friends, but in particular my family. Uh, it was probably the greatest mistake. I suffered alone for a very long time. And then when it hit a breaking point where I could no longer hide it, I realized I did not have to be alone for as long as I was. And it filled me with such such regret um, I was always so scared I would shame my family or scare my family or cause them pain. Instead, they stepped up. In particular, 
My father has always handled his, his stuff. He's always been the person, not just in my nuclear family, in our whole family. He's the guy, you got a problem, you go to him. He's the stable one who could fix it. I thought he was going to be disappointed at me. And I'll never forget years later, my dad asked me why I hadn't come to him. And I said, you know, I guess I really thought I was going to let you down. And there was a part of me that thought you wouldn't be able to help me. And if you couldn't help me, that would have scared me so bad because you saw, I've watched you help everybody. And he looked at me and he said, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have known how to help you. And initially it filled me with this panic that made me feel like I was like 19, 20 years old again and going, oh my God, oh my God. Like even being beyond a lot of my worst times, it scared me. And then he goes, but I still wish you would have told me because even though I wouldn't have known how to help you, I would have run through a wall to find the person who did. And uh, that was both one of the great moments of my entire life as well as such a source of regret. Because I think for a lot of us, when we hold things in out of fear of disappointing our parents or scaring our family, you are underestimating them ultimately. And I did that for far too long. Let's go to some happier questions. Sure. Thanks for letting me get deep and, and macabre. That's what people have come to expect from me, right? Yeah, I feel like if I don't tell your story, I'm not doing my job. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it made me laugh too. Sorry to interrupt, but in the special, there's the interview with these two girls from Baltimore. And the one girl says, yeah, she told me this guy talks about suicide all the time. He's a comedian. I said, I'm in. I go, okay. I'm glad there's some people, because most people here, he's a comedian who talks about suicide. They go, I think I'll stay in tonight. I don't know that this is my cup of tea. So thank God there's some people who can see the humor. You've been on films, TV shows. Which do you prefer? And what show, if there's one, do you still want to get a call from? I will tell you, I'm not in love with acting in general. It's a lot of sitting around. I am built, as again, this his special shows. I, I am built for like constant, let's be on the move. Let's see what's next. Let's find some mischief. Let's see what's out there. Um, it's production. I don't think it's fair to say like, is it TV or films? It really depends on who are you up there on the set with? Like probably my greatest experiences in film, uh, Anchorman 2 and, and the other guys, which Adam McKay directed. And he's just so, let's find it on our feet. Say the lines on the script and now throw it out. Let's say some crazy shit. Even me, the tiniest roles in the movie get there. Just say something insane this time instead of the one line in the script. That's very fun. And then I, I, I'm actually right now, I'm quarantining in Canada because we're about to do season two of a show called Space Force. And that's Greg Daniels and Steve Carell. And that's almost the opposite. It, it's not much improvising for me on my end, but it is such a classy operation full of kindness. Um, so I would say in general, I have a little bit of a mild distaste for acting in general, just because of how slow everything moves. I'm very lucky. I'm not complaining. It's an easy life. Uh, but it's really case by case. As far as if there's a show I could be on, does it have to still be on the air? I mean, I just rewatched Shit's Creek. I went, oh my God, this show is... How fun would it be to just get in there and throw down? That's when that comes to mind right away. Um there was a stretch where Kelly Ripa was looking for a new co-host. Uh, 
before Ryan Seacrest settled in. And that would have been my ultimate dream job. That Regis and Kathy Lee was my, my mother's favorite show growing up. So it would have been like such a dream for her. And I legitimately think I would be good at like feel good morning talk show television. Um, I know that's a weird answer for me being like, I'm the guy who performs for alligators. That is so weird because it's not like Chris is going to talk to a woman who lost her leg, saving a dog from a fire. Chris, Listen though, you watch, you watch that morning show. You watch Kelly, Kathy Lee Regis. I used to watch it with my mom every morning. That show. I look at it. You, it used to be on at nine in the morning, at least in my market. You go, okay, this show is aimed at largely women their husbands, their grumpy husband left for work already. Their annoying kids are on the school bus. You get back by nine. Now you got this guy, Regis. He's going to come out with a smile, a wink and a nod. He might sing a song. He's going to make you feel good. That nine to 10 hour when you get to have your first hour without all the annoyances of your family. Then Kathleen Lee comes out. She's lovely. They bounce off each other. Great. That makes people feel good. And as a comedian, your job is make people feel good. I'd love to have a 9 a.m. talk show that's aimed at your kids are gone. Your husband's out of here. Kick your feet up and relax. You've earned it. You're the one who gets looked over the most. I remember that's, that was my mom, right? We annoyed her so, me and my brother punching each other in the face and putting our clothes on backwards because we're idiots and running out the door and we haven't even had time to eat breakfast because we're jerks. And then my dad, who's a workaholic, leaving before the sun comes up. And then in the summers, I'd see how much my mom loved that Regis show. I'd go, this is great makes people like my mom feel good. I'd love to do that show. Chris Gathert joins us beyond the mic. What was your best summer moment with your family? Oh, that's... <laughs> Sadly, so many of them are me laughing at like dark stuff. Really? There's so many. I mean, we had a lot of good vacations, but... I remember a few that like we went to Mystic, Connecticut, which is a port town with like all this history stuff, brutal hurricane. I remember once being in Philadelphia and my parents were taking us to all like the history stuff. And my brother and I saw a woman getting beaten in the parking lot. Like I have all these memories of like this office. There's okay. There's two that come to mind. One that's funny. One that's sentimental. One is (laughs) there was one time where we were on a vacation and there was some guy dressed as a clown on the side of the road, like promoting a car dealership or something. And my brother was maybe 11 or 12. So he thought it was really fun to give people the finger. And he gave this clown the finger and the, we watched the clown get mad. Like the clown, you could tell this looking back now at the age of 40, I'm like, this guy is already like, I'm dressed as a clown on the side of a road in the summer. And then we went and got breakfast at some buffet place. And I'm not kidding you when I say we had just sat down and the clown walked in. And we saw him and he saw my brother. I mean, a very tense clown breakfast. And then I remember, I remember a camping trip to Cape May, New Jersey. And again, there was like a tropical storm. You're out on Cape May. It's a Cape. And we were in a camper um, with like canvas covering. So it was scary to be in that weather. And none of us could sleep. My dad did. My dad was sound asleep, but... I woke up in the middle of the night and we had a little black and white TV and my brother and my mom were watching Letterman. And I remember getting up and watching it with them. And they were, I woke up cause they were laughing so hard. And uh, that's when, that's the moment I fell in love with David Letterman. Letterman was a legend in my mind. I think of Letterman's daytime show. I'll tell you, cause I'm an Andy Kaufman devotee and Letterman really helped put him on the map. You know, it was at Letterman and SNL, I think did so much. 
And when you watch Andy Kaufman clips, some of the craziest ones, you don't realize they were actually Letterman's daytime show. He was like a lot of the late night stuff obviously was brilliant. But when you think of it in the context of like, yeah, this was at noon and he's doing like having the audience throw him change because he said he went bankrupt. You're like, he's getting pelted with quarters. I believe that was a daytime talk show bit. If I remember, I might be wrong on that, but I believe like things like that's pretty, that's pretty dark for noon. Now, what are your joys fighting for the underdog? You've helped raise money to feed hospital employees during COVID. You're not the typical star who fights for the who's who's list, but you fight for the underdog. What's it like fighting for and yet being the underdog? I really like it. And I try not to lose touch with it. And the past few years, you know, I had 2016 and 2017, I went on this hot streak. And at that point, I think a lot of the underdog fans said, you're not an underdog anymore. But I'll tell you, I feel that way every day. And at a certain point, and a lot of this was when I went into therapy and realized how much ego was driving me and how much I needed to eliminate that. That was what shifted my perspective and said, my work has to be about the audience first, not about me first. And I've always had this thing in my head and it really showed up with my TV show of, what is the TV show I would have loved when I was 11 years old and my brother was 13 and we were these two kids who did not have a good time at school, did not always have a good time with the neighborhood bullies. So what would we do? We'd sometimes sit in our basement and we'd find Uncle Floyd in New Jersey on the UHF channels. We'd find weird Spanish language game shows. We'd watch... We'd stay up way too late when we were kids and watch Letterman. We'd watch the Howard Stern Channel 9 show. We were finding all this weird stuff, you know? Let's find like pro wrestling that's on the on the upper channels, like not even WWF, like weird stuff. Like and those weird night movies on WOR. There you go, exactly. Like the first time I saw The Warriors or USA Up All Night, you know? Like all those sorts of things. And I go, man, those things really saved me in a way. Why? Cause they, they gave me something to do. And it also was a stuff of like, I know that these kids who torment me don't know about this stuff. And it was a safe haven. So with my TV show was when it really started me going, I want to make the show that would have been the ultimate show for 11 year old me, 13 year old me, the ultimate show for my brother when my brother was having such a hard time in school what's the show I would have loved more than any other show? And it turned out that it was a very strange show, but it was pretty on target. And a lot of the people who liked it were of that mentality, even of that age range sometimes. And uh, a lot of my stuff to this day, it's not, I don't sit here and I think about 11 year old me anymore, but I do sit here. I go, I oftentimes feel dumb in social situations because I'm completely unable to function for a guy whose job is to talk into a microphone in a few different contexts. I'm actually terrifically bad. I, I was um, recently, you know, st shows are starting up again. And I was in a car with two other comedians and I was in the back seat. and I'm 41 years old and I'm sitting there in my head, stressing out going, 
my inability to participate in a three-person conversation, profound. I can't figure out when to jump in on this. I'm sitting here going, oh, I want to bring up that thing they said about the Knicks, but that, that, that was they were talking about that five minutes ago. Would that be weird if I brought the Knicks away? Having the same anxiety I had when I was 14 about how I couldn't have conversations. So I think, uh, I think that's why ultimately is I'm really, I'm really, really bad at conversations. I'm really bad at conversation for a guy whose job is to talk to people on the phone is get critically lauded for my podcast where I just have conversations in real life. I'm quite bad at them. It turns out. Okay, brother. Got to give you one. You got to give me one answer here. Will the Knicks ever win with Dolan as an owner? This year got exciting. This year, there were some moments of clarity. The playoffs were kind of a disaster, but any Knicks fan was pleasantly surprised. And I think I am not the only Knicks fan who, uh, thawed and started watching games again. I've really been devoted just to college basketball the past few years because it's been so miserable with the program being a Knicks fan. So I don't know if they'll win it all, but hopefully they won't be as depressing. You know, hopefully this year marks a, a term where they're not as depressing as they have been for the past decade. Seton Hall Pirates, baby, Jersey. His midlife Christ, his job would either be a tugboat captain or work in a comic book store. Its latest comedy special, Half My Life, is available through streaming platforms anywhere. We thank Chris Gethard for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much. That was really fun. Those were legitimately really great questions. Thank you. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.